Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Today's show dives into the collision of culture, sports, and finance. We talk with Chase Griffin, a student athlete and QB at UCLA, who has become a pioneer in the college athletics name image likeness NIL movement and is a two times winner of the NIL Male Athlete of the Year Awards from the NIL Summit and Open Doors. Chase has excelled on and off the field, so he's no stranger to success. In high school, he was the Texas Gatorade Player of the Year and he turned down many Ivy League offers to commit to UCLA. At UCLA, he's played behind NFL draft pick Dorian Thompson-Robinson and put up strong performances on the field. Off the field, he's been a leader in the NIL movement and an exemplary student-athlete, to the point where his coach at UCLA, Chip Kelly, has said, if you could buy stock in a human, buy stock in Chase Griffin. Chase has definitely navigated the rapidly changing landscape of the NIL to secure over 30 NIL brand deals and launched the community and charity giving platform, NIL for Good. He recently joined Range Media Partners as athlete and creator in residence and contributes to Range's business operations across sports, NIL, film, TV, music, and social impact. Chase and I had a fascinating discussion about how the NIL could change college sports as we know it and how it will coincide with more investment into college athletics. At a time when private equity firms are investing into companies that are part of the developing NIL ecosystem, and possibly even investing into college athletics conferences. Chase shares his views on the impact that the NIL and financialization of sports has on athletes, colleges, pro sports, and broader student bodies. Congrats on all the accomplishments in your young career thus far, Chase. Thanks for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast to share your experiences and wisdom on the NIL. We're going mainstream. Chase, good to see you. Welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you again. Likewise. Well, there's a lot to talk about here. You've done a ton on the field, off the field. We'd love to hear how you got here and also related to the world of business and investing. You've become this face of the NIL movement. So we'd love to hear how you got involved with that and why that's so important for college sports. Definitely. I grew up playing soccer. That was my first sport. I was born in Santa Monica, but grew up in Texas from about the age of four. And soccer was really where I learned how to train. I would always score a bunch of goals on Saturdays. And on Sundays, I'd watch Ladini and Tomlinson run for a bunch of touchdowns. So I was like, Mama, can I play tackle football? And my parents, they said, no, nah, you're not getting hit until fifth grade, till you're 10 years old. So as soon as I was 10, had my first season of tackle football, and just fell in love with it, fell in love with the quarterback position and way led on the way throughout my high school experience. I was fortunate to have the Friday Night Lights environment around and surrounding me at Hutto High School. It prepared me to represent brands and it prepared me to represent names and communities larger than myself. My senior year, I was the Gatorade Player of the Year, the Ford Tough Player of the Year in Texas. 
By the time I even got to UCLA, I had hundreds of hours of media practice and media training and multiple brand engagements. Obviously, I wasn't paid for them and they weren't in the same setting as NIL, but I already understood the concept of value add. Pair that with me going as hard as I could in school when I first got to UCLA and playing well on the field when I got my chances. I was doing a good job of cataloging my experience on the content side, on the right channels as well. I was on Twitter, Instagram, but I was also big on LinkedIn. When I chose UCLA, I chose it over a bunch of the Ivy League schools, and I felt if I was passing on Harvard, I had to make the most out of the UCLA ecosystem. I think by treating people the right way and staying true to myself and and having something that I was really about and being excellent at whatever area of my life I was going to give effort to, I created a good and trustworthy name and brands wanted to align with that. Through perspective and, and through the opportunities that I've been blessed to have, I've learned. I've gotten better on the content side, on the production side, on the talent side, on the relationship side, and my network has grown. And now I'm at a nexus where I'm figuring out new ways to utilize the platform that I have the advantage of having in order to trek into newer areas of media and entertainment. You have a fascinating vantage point because you got to university before the NIL movement really took hold. And now you've been part of pushing the NIL movement forward. So first, would love to hear from you, for those who may not be as familiar with what NIL is and stands for, would like to hear that from you. And then also hear about what it was like transitioning from, like you said, someone who was working with brands, but maybe not in the context of the NIL, where you could actually monetize that engagement, the following community you've built up. But now as an NIL athlete, you actually can, as I think people should be able to, because they're bringing in revenue for the school, they're bringing in new followers, fans, et cetera. We'd love to hear those two things from you. NIL stands for Name, Image, and Likeness. It was first enacted during summer of 2021, where prior to then, athletes such as myself could not monetize our name or likeness in any way, uh, whether it be monetizing a YouTube channel selling music under our name, doing appearances, doing any type of endorsements or commercials, college athletes were barred from that. And as part of the Austin decision, which mandated that the NCAA as a business model as a whole is flawed and needs to be reworked, NIL fell under that umbrella and was really the first domino on a long but rather swift journey to revenue share, which is impending, I think, over the next three to five years. With NIL, I knew that I had a good brand. I knew that I had some following. Uh, I knew that being good on camera was something that I took pride in, but more so being able to connect with brands in a way that was authentic for my followers and in a way that protected brands from any type of unwanted press or bad PR was, I think, an advantage of how I approached NIL, as well as taking pride in having the best content. I found great videographers around me and found a content creation strategy that kept my content consistent. How do you think universities have responded to this? And what I mean by that is, one, this does provide a way for 
all student athletes, whether they're the star players or not, whether they're with the, with the, the biggest ticket sports for the university that brings in the most revenue or not, players can actually engage with fans and brands. And that's great for everyone. How has the university response been in terms of helping student athletes figure out how they can actually effectively be entrepreneurs while they're still in school? I think it varies by the university. I think there were some universities that were already pushing the boundaries as far as uh, how to legally equip your athletes with the tools to do this. I also think that by nature, a lot of the Olympic sports, just because of, frankly, the demographics and groups that it takes to receive the training, already have access to good networks that they can tap into and have that skill set. But I think for revenue generating sports, the schools that have been doing the best job at equipping these young men and women for the next level, whether it be professionally in their sport or in the corporate and professional world in general, are going to see that when revenue share comes, that their strategy surrounding NIL, if it's stable and in a way that creates value, are going to see the most sustainable growth in revenue share and are going to be able to recruit the kids that they want. Was college sports a business before the NIL? Absolutely. It's a multi-billion dollar business. So how does this change how college sports is a business. And what I'm trying to get at is student athletes are now to some extent business people that can actually monetize from that before they couldn't. So what does this do to that aspect of college sports as a business? Well, I think NIL only adds as a surplus to the college athletics landscape as a whole. But even today with NIL, athletes are not capturing on the value that they create for the general college sports landscape business. There was just a $7 billion deal with Fox that the Big Ten signed. Athletes are seeing zero of those dollars directly into our pockets. I think what NIL is the first step on the way to revenue share, where with revenue share, just like literally every single other industry, the talent or the the main labor force or whatever you want to call it, sees a percentage of the end revenue share. And right now, athletes don't see that directly. We may see it in travel to games, uniforms, facilities, scholarship, stipend, but it's not directly towards us. And that's an anomaly. It's why the Supreme Court ruled against the NCAA in the Alston case. I think that once you incentivize athletes to increase the total revenue for everyone else, because we finally get a slice of the pie, that's when in the long run, you'll see major growth for the industry as a whole. I think you're bringing up a fascinating point. We saw this recently in the MLS with Messi joining Inter-Miami, getting a portion of the revenues from Apple TV's MLS season pass and how that's impacting the game, but also from a player perspective, player being so valuable and having such influence and ability to connect with so many fans and bring fans in that they're able to actually share in some of that revenue. It feels like where you're going with this is somewhat similar to that, right? If the players are bringing in so much engagement to the game, And maybe the NIL is the first step towards helping players showcase that 
they're bringing in millions of followers or new fans or engagement or making money off of brand deals that maybe that does lead to revenue share. Is that kind of how you think this path gets paved? I think NIL was important for public sentiment. I think we're at a point now where public sentiment is in favor of athletes getting paid. It showed that all the naysayers that were saying NIL is going to be the death and destruction of college sports as we know it were just false. More people watch college football than ever before. And a lot of that is because they're seeing how active the athletes can be and they're seeing these athletes in a different space and capturing their humanity. As far as revenue share, partially on the public sentiment side, but legally the cake is baked. As soon as the Supreme Court says this NCAA model is unlawful, then it has to be remedied in a way that matches every other industry. And in every single other industry, if there was a group of folks that are this integral as the athletes are to the value creation model, they will receive a piece of the revenue and a substantial piece of the revenue. How do you think the universities feel about that? Because on one hand, it's good for the universities and the conferences. And to your point, could argue that some of that does trickle down to the players uh, or, or the more general student body in a number of ways, but not directly to the players. How, how do universities feel about this changing landscape? Is it something that they view as a positive? Because there's also so many other nuances to this when it comes to what's the relationship between student and athlete for those who are student athletes, but effectively in your professionals now to some extent in a way too. I think there's three ways that schools go about this. And this is similar to how schools approached NIL. Number one is be the naysayer, keep your head in the sand and just watch other schools out recruit you, prepare their athletes better for the next level, prepare their athletes better for the professional world than you because you're stuck fighting for something that is already dead. Number two is some schools are going to link up with different impresarios of the space, different power brokers, and designate entities similar to the NCAA. And this has been supported by some politicians, some lawmakers. The only issue is for a lot of these, not all of them, but for a lot of these organizations, they don't consult with the athlete perspective and therefore are not advocating completely for what the athlete wants. And whether they know it or not, they're not capturing the total value creation that could happen by increasing this athlete perspective and incentive for athletes. And then third are the schools, the entities that are focusing on how do you utilize the power that athletes have been given through NIL, through revenue share coming up, and create a model where the folks that have already been the engine of the value creation are empowered to do it to another level and are able to A, capture on that value that they create, but also do it in a way that's sustainable and maximizes output for everyone. And I think this is the winning model, not just for schools, but just Overall, for the college athletics landscape, I think having athletes in the room is important for the media deals, for the conferences, because 
when you involve college basketball in there and women's college basketball, now you can capture on the millions of dollars that were lost in the Big Ten deal with Fox, where even the NCAA, even the Big Ten is saying, yeah, we missed out because we didn't think to advocate for that side of the value creation model. And when athletes are at the table, we understand the work that goes in. We understand the value that's created. We understand the communities, the schools that we play for. We love them. When you add that in there, there's more incentive for value creation. Therefore, everyone gets a bigger slice of the pie. How do you think that this changes the balance of power with recruiting and even shifting in conferences? Like you say, certain schools will prioritize this over others, and maybe they end up joining conferences where other schools prioritize this because they're going to want to play against the best teams that also prioritize this because they're able to attract certain players and quality and talent level of player. How does this change the whole landscape of college sports? I think it just enhances it. The best schools have always been trying to play with and against the best schools. Schools with better facilities, more money, higher endowments have always been able to get better students, let alone student athletes. The endowment at Harvard is not competing against a small regional school in a different region for the same students, the same way a Power 5 school isn't necessarily competing with other divisions for the same athletes. I think every single school has its place, and the best thing that they can do is find ways to generate value for their athletes, because with that, there's new ways to build your brand. You're at a small school, there's athletes who are killing it on the NIL side. And if there's an athlete who knows that they can go build their name at your school, even though it's smaller, they may consider it more than the large power five school where their name may get washed. All of the arguments surrounding, well, how does this make things fair? Like fair in a capitalist economy and fair in in an industry that generates billions is an extremely moral high ground to take. It's almost a high ground that's only taken when talking about the paternalistic nature of the NCAA coddling and taking care of these athletes and protecting us from ourselves. When at the end of the day, we're three, four, two, one, sometimes six months removed from the professional world. Well, you mentioned the professional world and in some senses, the NIL... And more investment into college sports and more money going into college sports does impact how student athletes may think about matriculating to professional sports for those who are already and able to make it. How does this change the equation for athletes when it comes to thinking about professional sports? I think money is is one thing, but bottom line, I, I know for myself, most athletes who have dedicated their entire lives to a craft and literally are in pain every single day, both mentally and physically, we're not just doing it for a check at the end of end of the year. Uh, we're doing it because we love our school that we chose. We want to win. We love our teammates that we put in a lot of time and work and energy for and with. And most importantly, we all were that kid with a dream. I know I was. And I know that there's a bunch of teammates that I have that are, and I'm sure that's consistent throughout the entire nation. As far as playing professionally, yes, does a professional contract have the chance to alter an entire family's trajectory? Yes. And is that a primary motivator? Yes. But in addition to that, 
if you have a chance to make two million in NIL money out of school or two million or three million to play professionally, there's going to be a lot of folks that take the professional side. Interesting. So they'd still take the professional side, even though they get all the benefits from staying in school. I mean, I think from an outsider looking in, you can get a degree by staying an extra year or two at a university. You can get multiple degrees like you have, which sets you up for later in life after whatever professional sports career you may end up having. And, you know, it gives you the ability to just have more optionality. I think that's one of the fascinating things to think about is players can still go professional. And sure, I think we all know being involved in these worlds that being in a professional sports environment is probably better for playing professional sports to hone the craft and work on it every day, not have the pressures of going to school and things like that and understand both sides of it for sure. But there are benefits from staying in school, being able to make money while in school that may change the trajectory of athletes, their families' lives. It's interesting to think about where this goes from that perspective. Definitely. I'm probably not the best person to ask on that either, just because I've been in school for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) But with multiple degrees to show for it. Absolutely. It's all been awesome. I don't have another five years like some other folks do have. On that point, though, I think one of the most admirable things about student athletes is they have to balance effectively two full-time jobs. Like every other peer, they're going to school and have to excel at that but also have to dedicate a full-time job to doing their sport incredibly well and representing their school. How do you think the NIL changes that? Does it put an additional pressure on athletes where because they're making money off of maybe the sport they play or the brand and following they have from that, that they have to reprioritize things in ways that maybe they didn't beforehand? I think the athletes who are either doing well in NIL or on the field and going professional in their sport have always had their priorities right to a certain extent. I know for myself, if NIL wasn't here, I would still be spending the same amount of time and energy on work. It would just be all within football, all within networking, and all within school. Now there's something added to it where I'm able to budget out seven or eight hours a week to it during season that gets cut down a little bit, obviously. And as long as I'm able to keep seeing benefits from it, I'll put time into it. I'm definitely an an optimist, but I am, I think, savvy with the amount of time that I spend on things. If I don't see the value prop in something, I'm not going to waste my time on that because I understand it is precious. And I have real priorities as far as school and football. Uh, I think athletes who've done well in the space and athletes in general to even survive in the college athletics landscape have innate skill sets that provide discipline and characteristics of creating value. We're creating value virtually for free before NIL and still to a certain extent until revenue share. I think Doing the same thing for brands and actually getting a check attached to it feels really good. And it's very rewarding. And the athletes who are doing it the right way are delivering on return on investment for brands as well. How do you feel that coaches think about the NIL and the time that's being spent off the field? Sure, I think they want people to pursue their talents and skills in whatever ways that is, whether it's in the classroom or outside of the classroom. But they're also responsible that they get paid to. They're also responsible for producing on the field. 
and that's their contract with the university. How do you think this has changed the way coaches think about all of this? I think coaches, the good ones are going to embrace it because they understand whether you're going to fight against City Hall or not. It is the reality. If you can create better programs on campus to assist athletes professionally in school and with their NIL, then you're going to recruit better players and you're going to be more attractive to folks who are trying to maximize their college experiences. I think as a coach, if you're truly a teacher, truly an educator, then NIL is a way for your athletes to create good business acumen while still in college. Uh, And it sort of helps the coaches deliver on their family room, talking to your mom and pop's uh, promises. On the flip side, I think some coaches are realizing Well, now that more athletes and more brands are open to involving themselves in the marketing side, how can I involve myself as talent in the marketing side? There's some coaches out there that are stars by nature. Obviously, there's some obvious ones in my mind. But for folks who want to build their brand and are out of school and have a good following, if they want to build it out on the marketing side, I think that's sort of a lane that some coaches are getting into. You talking about the guy with the sunglasses? <laughs> or those who don't know, that's Deion Sanders. No, that's, but think about what he's done for the school and the town of Boulder, bringing in that kind of yeah, revenue, state. that kind of excitement <laughs> for the town, the state of Colorado, the university, all of that. It is real. And I think that gets to how important engaging people in online communities has been. You've done that really well. And you talked about that a little bit before about building this incredibly engaged community on social media. How have you gone about that? And what's been the most effective way in terms of engaging community? Authenticity is always key for me, just because it's going to be impossible, or at least from my perspective, for me to do 12 hours of football, three hours of class, and then come home and do posts about things I don't care about at all or that are not true to myself. So as far as any type of programming, it's a lot easier to post things that are either already going to happen because of your daily life, whether it be showcasing your school, showcasing your sport, showcasing your hobby or your talent that you do in your off time, or doing things that you genuinely care about. As soon as you're able to convey some sort of passion through your content, then other folks can actually connect to you as a person and not just as an account. Now, I'm still continuing on building this out and finding out what sticks. I do do a lot of things. So sometimes it's interesting because I'm trying to find ways to capture content-wise all the things that I do because there will be days where obviously I'm in football eight to 10 hours a day and then I have school and then I'm doing music and then I'm doing some NIL stuff. Uh, So there's a lot of cool things that I'm blessed to be involved in. Sometimes it's even tough for me to find ways to capture all of that within the same sort of space. And I think having a canvas and having an array of activities is a huge blessing. And I'm still working on capturing all of that in a way that's condensed, focused, and palatable for the public. How have you gone about approaching how you effectively build Chase Griffin LLC as an NIL business person in terms of here's how I'm going to do this. Here's what I'm going to focus on. Here's how I can actually build a business, build a brand 
what has been the thought process for those athletes out there listening who may be able to follow in your footsteps? For me, it all comes down to values. I consider myself a believer, a winner, a provider. That sort of is my personal value prop. And it's what I look for in companies to align with. And second is do the deals and partnerships that I participate in create economic value. Is the check that's happening at the end of the campaign on par with my market value? Am I pricing myself down? Am I steady climbing on that trajectory? Is it worthwhile for the amount of time, energy, pre-production, post-production, talent that I'm putting into a project? And then third is community value where I take a piece of the economic value from all of my deals and find ways to empower the communities that I care about. Food insecurity is something that's uh, important to me as far as focusing on how we can help alleviate those issues. So I've found experts in the space who are great at alleviating those issues, where the L.A. Regional Food Bank has the LAUSD backpack program for kids who rely on school lunch and school breakfast during the day. That way they don't go hungry on the weekends when they don't have school and providing them with food. When I'm able to break it down that way, it helps explain what I'm about as a whole to both businesses and followers who keep up with my content. Sounds like you need an agent who can be doing this for you. And and same with, I I say this tongue in cheek because I'm sure agencies are thinking about this and also athletes are also probably thinking about this, but how would brands go about finding you? Uh, A lot of brands reach out directly and I'm on a lot of channels. LinkedIn has been fruitful for me. Some marketplaces have also been great partners for me throughout this entire endeavor. I think an advantage to feeling secure in myself is I think I'm an authentic and good networker where I genuinely talk to people. I hear them out no matter what my initial sort of reaction is. Just because I feel like even if I don't do this campaign with someone or I have this conversation, it doesn't lead to anything within the next six months. I never know when a year down the line, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, there's something that I need with them to help me with what I'm trying to accomplish in the space. And then also expanding my vision. It's funny that you say that I probably need an agent. I would argue that for the work that I'm doing now, I don't. Now, I I definitely have folks who are my support and are keeping me in mind for for deals and are helping me on that front. But I've learned so much on the experience by being on every single meeting, every single call, every single pre-production planning meeting, every single post-production meeting to the point where I think I've prepared myself as much on the management side experientially as I have on the talent and production side. And to be able to see that, I think it is the most valuable expertise that I've developed because now, like you said earlier, I'm able to see, wait, this is why I have success. And as soon as I'm able to see that, I'm able to A, play to my strong points, better my weak points, and then help create a template that's more workable for others. That's fascinating because where my mind went with that is, okay, how much are athletes using the NIL opportunity as a way to learn about business? 
and prepare themselves for the future. How do you and maybe your peers think about using the NIL as a way to build the foundation for your career post-university or post-professional career? I think it depends on the person. Some people just want to have some NIL deals on their profile because they think it looks good. Nothing's wrong with that. Some people have a couple brands that they're really passionate about and now they want to partner with them. Some people want to make some money just to have in their pocket is spending money. Some people, they recognize the platform they have and they want to make generational money off of it. I think the thing about NIL is literally yourself. It's name, image, and likeness. So it's whatever you see it as and want to use it as. For some folks, NIL is just a content creation opportunity where you practice that. For some folks, it's their first opportunity to pay taxes. I think for me, even my understanding of what NIL could be has expanded over time as I've had more access, credibility, more networking ability where dreams that I had early on are now able to be realized because I'm at a point where when I say it, it actually makes sense. And I think a lot of that comes from experience. Every single time a teammate asks me about NIL, I understand that I have to talk about it how I thought about it very early on. I can't tell someone, yeah, so now you can build this media property because they haven't had the expertise to be where I'm at yet. And I don't take that lightly. It's a huge blessing. This is a fascinating concept because I think it gets to something deeper and something that your generation is one that's currently in university, seeing NIL, seeing creator platforms rise. You can now monetize on creator platforms. And I want to share a quote that your coach at UCLA, Chip Kelly, said about you, which is, if you could buy stock in a human, buy stock in Chase Griffin. I don't ask this question because I think necessarily people are investable, although to some extent, yes, you can now back people in various ways and things that they do. But I want to get to the, the bigger point of that, which is, as you see your peers, maybe who are not athletes, but just peers in student body, and they're seeing athletes like yourself and sitting next to all your teammates and in class, and they see you making money as a creator. How do you think it changes their perspective on this idea of culture merging with finance? Finally, athletes are able to access this side of college, the most lucrative and arguably valuable part of college that athletes were barred from. Every single class that athletes have had, there's been future millionaires, some schools, future billionaires, founders, folks who are geniuses in their field that they've never been able to have any type of business partnership with or even have any type of experiential knowledge when having conversations with this person. Uh, for the first time ever, athletes are true peers in the business space with their college classmates. And I was, especially early on, but I realized athletes were not elevated past everyone else when NIL came to be. We were just put on the same level playing field as every single other person. There were folks who were ambassadors for companies my freshman year. Athletes weren't able to tap into that side, even though they arguably at a lot of schools have the biggest platforms and have the most visibility, which is the reason brands tapped into that fast, because it, it's... a a surefire way to create 
return on investment. So how, how have you seen the reaction from your classmates? What's been different about it? How have they thought about this as non-student athletes, but seeing it firsthand? I think they finally appreciate, and not to say that the rest of the student body didn't, because when people think back to their college days, a lot of time they think back to their basketball team, or they think back to their football team, or they think back to the times they had watching those players. But being able to see these athletes in the new dynamic where in my law classes, I'm in class with folks who are established professionally, whether they work at Netflix, Hulu, Warner Brothers, and I'm able to talk to them as, oh, yeah, I'm getting into acting. Yeah, I'm getting into hosting unscripted and producing unscripted TV. Like, let's work. That's the first time athletes have been able to have those conversations. I think you're bringing up a really interesting point, which is, sure, fans would buy merch. They would go to games, do all those things. Do you think they value the athletes who are on the field or court playing college sports differently because they now know that you can monetize in other ways too? I think public opinion has showed a shift throughout NIL to going from NIL will be the death of college athletics to NIL is supplemental to my love for college athletics. Anytime you humanize any type of talent, whether it be in the acting world, sports world, it creates true followership. Folks actually believe in the person as well as the player and are able to identify more with the player. It's one thing you see someone run for 200 yards when you realize you're from the same town as them, you grew up the same way, you have the same passions, same sort of perspectives as someone, then it's a lot easier to root for them. What do you think on that point private equity does? We saw the Learfield deal happen recently. Fortress Clear Lake, Charles Bank just invested in a effectively a marketing business for college sports teams, universities. What is the continued entry of private equity, whether it's that or there's talks that the ACC may get financed by private equity, the conference get financed by private equity. How do you think that changes the game? I think people in the financial space who have budgets are trying to find best value propositions and they're trying to maximize return. And anyone who's looking at the shift in college athletics and the landscape trending towards revenue share if done the correct way, everyone's going to be a big winner. And I think firms are betting on that. Well, talk about betting. Like your coach said, it sounds like people should bet on you for a number of reasons. So I have to ask you, what's next for Chase Griffin? So I have this season and then another season of eligibility. Uh, Right now I'm focused on Utah. We got Utah this week in Salt Lake. So I'm excited for that. Off the field, school's going really well building out a small network there and really enjoying the classes. I think it'll give me good knowledge as I continue to grow in the entertainment space. And then I consult with Range Media. Uh, I have some good projects going on the Uniworld side and getting into more traditional Hollywood-style media, whether it be on the unscripted side, producing and hosting. I have a couple of projects in motion. And then on the scripted side, once the strike's over, getting in with directors, getting in with producers, and trying to parlay the credibility that I'm building on the branded and unscripted side over to the scripted arena. What's fascinating about what you're saying is related to something you said earlier, which is 
universities now have the ability to attract student athletes who are passionate about certain interests. And sure, they may have been able to attract them beforehand as well. UCLA, obviously, you're close to the media and entertainment world. So that was something I'm sure student athletes had doors open to for a while. But now I'd imagine because of something like the NIL, you're able to do different things and even showcase your own talents in different ways to people in the media and entertainment world that maybe you couldn't have done before. So I think this harkens back to something you said earlier, which is so valuable for the career development of many student athletes. Absolutely. And I think investment is what ties everything that I'm doing together just because I produce music. So from sports, media, entertainment, music, having that perspective, uh, as well as I joined on as a fellow at the UC Investment Office. So there I'm learning how to institutionally invest and how money moves things. I'm at a cool nexus where I, I see how value creation and, and talent really drives our economy as a whole. And finding ways to tie investment in there, uh, I think, gives me a leg up against my peers in the space. What do you think has been the most interesting thing you've learned about investing from working with the UC Investment Office? Less is more. <laughs> Less is more. What do you mean by that? I've had numerous conversations with our CIO and just hearing how simple his strategy is and referring to Warren Buffett, where Warren Buffett says, nobody should hire a CIO. Now, I know he's, he's being a little funny when he says this, but hearing from a CIO the importance of not doing too much, of reading the markets for what they are and seeing his success in the space, as well as his passion to empower young folks to do the same. I'm getting to a point where I've been able to earn some money and I've been able to practice good spending habits, good saving habits, good investment habits. And to be validated from folks who are experts in that space is great for me. To use a sporting analogy and one that relates to alternative investing, can't make it to the professional level overnight. It takes 10, 15 years of hard work, right? And that's that's only when you see the end result. But investing, I've learned the same as you, that patience is above all else. Not too much patience, though. <laughs> <laughs> you need to know when to act, but have patience. But on that point, I ask every guest at the end of this podcast, what is your most favorite or interesting alternative investment? It's not really exciting at all, and it's not really an alternative investment. But through my time at the UC Investment Office, I've been un able to understand the importance of investing in bonds and how something so boring on paper or something so in front of your face and so easy is sometimes the best move you can make. Well, given that this is an alts-focused podcast and firms like... Aries and Oak Tree and Apollo have, have big presences out in LA. Maybe private credit is, is next on the list for you to take a look at. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Well, Chase, this was a fascinating conversation. Congrats on everything you've done. Only the beginning of, of your story that's being written. So pleasure to have you on the podcast and share what you've done. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chase. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going